Welcome, everyone. My name is Rick Bonkowski, and this is the Amped Up to 11 podcast. Rob and Christine Zimmerman are here today. Rob made headlines in 2018 when he went through a catastrophic accident while working for Amtrak and lost his hands. Uh, it is my pleasure to welcome both of them today, and I'm so pleased that we have both of you, both of you here today. Um, welcome, guys. Good to see you. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going great. And where in the world are you right now? What part of the country? We're in Ronkonkoma, New York. And help help the audience understand where that is exactly. It's, New York's uh, a big place. <laughs> Long Island. Long right? Island. Okay. Long Island. All right. That's helpful. You know, when I think about uh, Rob's story in particular and doing the research that I've done on his accident, his progress, and what has kind of led you to this moment, I, I really view his story much more so as your story, meaning both of you. And I'm inspired by that. You know, this is, to be quite honest, this is my first podcast that we're doing with two guests um, instead of just one. So, hey, this is this is the first time. And, you know, the the support and the um, encouragement and just the the sort of patience and family that you you represent in this particular situation. Um, it's it's remarkable. I, I, I think it's it's probably the most important part of your story. And. You know, very often people want to focus on well, what happened, and you know, uh, you know, what kind of prosthetics is he using, and all that kind of stuff. And and don't get me wrong, it, it, that's all very important. But I also feel like the story about you both overcoming this together is, is also a big piece of you know what I want to talk about today. Um, I guess I want to ask, how do you see it? I mean, do you see this as a team effort? You know, I, uh, hopefully you won't discount everything I just said. No, <laughs> we're definitely a team. We're, you know, I retired uh, last month, so we're we're together 24-7. And that, that's been very helpful that I can be home with him all the time now and not rely on other people to help take care of him. So we do everything together now. It's not easy. Um, uh, all these changes that happen, um, brought upon, uh, difficult times. Like you have to just get used to, you can't just jump into it. You have to get used to it. You have to understand it. You have to understand what's going on. And then you have to like accept it and then go forward. It's not easy just to stop working. She retired and then take care of me. She was never a, a provider like that. She never was an aide. That was her, not her profession. She was a professional businesswoman. So to come in to do that and stop what she's doing and to take care of somebody else or not, you know, her husband is a big uh, leap to do. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a easy. huge, it's a huge shift in the, um, the marital dynamic, let's call it. So you're, you're in this particular rhythm as a couple, you know, and you have the everyday life that you do. And, and I'm assuming that was um, very much, from what I've read about you, Rob, you know, you're, you were just a hardworking guy. I mean, that yeah. was just who you were. And for suddenly all of that to change and challenge that rhythm, that dynamic that you had established over the course of your marriage and to make all those adjustments, um, again, I, I, I think it's such a big part of your story. And, you know, myself as an amputee, when people ask me, well, well, how do you get through this? And and how do you make, you know, how did you change your life and make these adjustments? And I always say, it's really not about me. It's actually about everybody around me. Sure. What, yeah, what adjustments did they make so that I could lead the life that I wanted to? And um, 
I appreciate you acknowledging that because, you know, uh, partners, spouses, our, 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 you know, our support systems, you know, Rob, sometimes they sit like in the shadows, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're out front, like taking a bow, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah, look at us. And, and in your mind, you're thinking, well, if I didn't have this woman here, I, I don't know how I would do any of this. That's so true. You yeah. know, I mean, um, without my wife to help me do all the daily stuff that she helps me do, um, she should get all the credit. Uh, she should be taking the bow in front of everybody. No. But it, it's a lot. It's a lot for her to deal with. It's a lot for us both to like yeah. uh, deal with. It's difficult because yeah. a lot of people, like you, would probably uh, know this. A lot of people really don't understand what goes into like really taking care of people with these kind of disabilities. Right. No, and and it's uh, it's a game changer. And um, what's sad to me is when I see relationships end because of tragedy. It it's just not it it's just not digestible for them. You know, they can't get on the other side of it. And for someone like yourself, you know, uh, incredibly hardworking guy, and to suffer a tragedy due to work. You know, this wasn't just like some random accident per se. You know, you weren't, you know, in a car or on a motorcycle. I mean, you're you're doing the thing that you do. You went to work, um, and to be able to come out on the other side of that in a successful relationship, it's it's a lesson for all of us that are struggling. I I, I want to talk a little bit more, Rob, about um, your upbringing. You know, where you grew up, what what was your family life like? What, what did you come from? And, and you might wonder, okay, well, what's that all about? Um, I, I really want to establish a little bit about your upbringing only because I think very often in these stories, what we come from has to do with how we get through a lot of what we manage, you know, as amputees. So if you don't mind sharing, that would be wonderful. No, I don't mind. Um, it's quite interesting, actually. Um, I was born in Far Rockaway, Queens, and then uh, right when I was a toddler, we moved out to Long Island, and then uh, my parents raised me in Brentwood, and I graduated Brentwood High School. It was kind of a, uh, it wasn't the greatest school district on Long Island, and it still isn't, but that's where I graduated from, so I was a product of my environment. I was kind of, area. I was kind of a uh, troubled kid. I got some trouble in high school, but then I went back and graduated and took care of business. But once I became 18, I joined in the military. I was in the Navy for 10 years. So 18, I'm going into the military. Now, was was that a part of your family culture, or was that just a decision that you made independently? No, I made that independently because I really didn't have uh, any kind of guidance when I was younger. So when I when I finished high school, I really didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so you felt like the military would give you some direction. And Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and, and no, and that's... To me, that's a, a wonderful calling. I mean, to serve your country is, you know, it, it, it's certainly not part of, you know, my particular family path. And when I see people in those those lines of service, um, my hat's off to you. So, you know, of course, thank you for that. Um, so you go into the military at 18, and what is that experience like? Well, my um, it was 1991, so the I went through boot camp, school, and then I finally got to my ship, the USS Independence, mm-hmm. an aircraft carrier. It was based out of Yokosuka, Japan, and that was during the first Gulf War. Right. So that summer, I went right to right to the Persian Gulf and spent the next four years fighting um, um, Operation Southern Watch, um, Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield, mm-hmm. and then when we were done with that, I got orders to go to Puerto Rico. Spent two years there and then got orders to go to Patuxent River, Maryland. And that's where I met my wife. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. And that would have been that would have been about what year? That was about nineteen ninety-seven. Okay. Right? Ninety end of ninety six. Yeah. Okay. And Midnight. and you 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 meet Christine and it it uh are you tapped on the shoulder in terms of it's time to settle down? It's time to <laughs> No. Well, we had a we had a baby, and then it, it was decision time whether to reenlist and go to sea for five years, or to go home and try and start a family, and make some uh, better money. Yeah. So it, it must decided have, to get out. I was going to say it must have been the second. Then is the one you yes. chose. 
Okay. So we decided to get out, and then uh, now this is around 1998. And then I got um, uh, a job with Long Island Railroad. I became a locomotive engineer. So I operated trains for uh, for quite a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And then I got hurt on the Long Island Railroad, hurt my back, and then left the job for a couple of years and came back with Amtrak, trying to continue my railroad service. So I, I started working at Amtrak and became a operator and a electric traction lineman. And then eventually brought me to Penn Station where, where the incident happened. Hey amputees, I'd like to take a moment to introduce everyone to the liner wand. We all know how bacteria and odor can be a major issue with prosthetic liners, and the liner wand is the solution. Did you know that if you're using soap and water, you may be making the problem worse? The liner wand uses a patented formula that deletes all bacteria and smells for two weeks. The liner wand is available as an affordable subscription or individually, and it always ships for free. To learn more, visit thelinerwand.com. That's T-H-E-L-I-N-E-R-W-A-N-D.com. Use code 211, that's 211, and receive 50% off your first subscription today. You can also use the code RICK, R-I-C-K, and receive 25% off your cleanser subscription as well. That's thelinerwand.com. And then eventually brought me to Penn Station where where the incident happened. Okay. And um, how many children during that entire span of time there? You have boys, correct? All boys. Yeah, we had three boys now, all adults. Okay, all adult boys now. And um, that pursuit in terms of, you know, working for the railroad, um, what, what uh, you know, what gravitated you towards that? What, what, what was the thing that you thought, okay, well, th- this is something that I want to do? Um, in the beginning, I didn't really, I just thought the railroad was a, a good spot to put my resume in. And when, when I got called, I actually got called to be a station cleaner. So I was just trying to get into a company that was that's established and strong, and that's what you know uh, one of the big companies on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And then I just progressively moved up to become a locomotive engineer. Huh. To become an engineer is a lot of work. When uh, when he was studying to be an engineer, I was pregnant with Joseph, our youngest, and we never. And even when I had Joseph, we never saw him in the beginning because you know with three boys in the house, it was loud and busy. So he would go to his parents' house to study where it was quiet so we yeah. could pass the test. Right. So it was a big deal. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're raising a family, you know, you're, you're building your career, you're making all the right choices. And when you were working for Amtrak, was there anything that ever concerned you in terms of your position, your purview, where you thought, Anything even remotely similar to what happened to you could potentially happen. Was 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 you know? In other words, was there ever a uh oh kind of moment in your job life where something like what happened to me could happen? Yeah, we're we're let's say potential for something bad to happen before. Yeah, a potentiality, correct? Where you Uh, thought, huh? Okay, I believe. uh, I'm sorry. I believe that potential was always there. That's why, like, you know, you really got to be um, right on top of safety and all the rules and all that kind of stuff. But the potential is always there for a human to make a mistake. uh, That's all it takes. Yeah. And and then that's it. I don't think that we ever thought that far in advance. Our son was actually, our oldest son was working with him. Um, He was in training. And if Andrew hadn't been at class that night, this would have happened to our son. And to be honest with you, I don't think that Andrew would have lived through it. Rob's got um, metal in his back. And the doctors say that um, when he was electrocuted, that the the metal in his back actually deflected, deflected it, acted as a conductor and, and, and shot the, the energy away from his heart, which would have, it would have killed, you know, he would have been in a lot worse shape than he was. So our son doesn't have that. So as much as we are, you know, angry and upset and, you know, devastated that this happened to him. We're also very grateful that it wasn't our child. Yeah, that's sort of an interesting uh, equation mm-hmm. there in that you're saying there was a, a, 
very much a possibility that it could have been your son. Well, he was yes. training Andrew, so he would make Andrew do everything so that Andrew would learn hands-on. All the trainees were off that night because they had a yeah, scheduled class. class. But now, when I got the call in yeah. the middle of the night from Rob's phone, when I woke up and looked, because he never called me, it was overnight, um, I thought it was Andrew. I almost couldn't answer the phone. I thought something happened to him. Wow. So when you talk about your specific duties, um, you know, for Amtrak, just for for the listeners, Rob, that don't really understand. I mean, we all know, we all know, you know, what a train is. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's so much deeper than that. And there's so many other things that go on um, behind the scenes for people like yourself that keep everyone safe and keep, you know, keep these trains running what what are your daily activities like what is it that your job entails give me your job description so my job title is a electric traction lineman uh slash operator and what that means is, is that um we work on the overhead catenary wire that provides electric power to the trains mm-hmm. so if you ever see a pantograph on top of a train a thing that sticks up yep. and touches the wire that they call those pantographs and that that allows the energy which is twelve thousand volts in the catenary to go, to travel down into the train and allow it to 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 propel and go. Okay. And what our job is is to uh, build, erect, and maintain them. Okay. So we build them, and then if something goes wrong, uh, we go out there and we fix it. If the power goes out, you know that's all uh, our responsibility. So whatever happens to the wires on um, on the entire railroad, that's our responsibility. So when your when your accident occurred. Was this a, if I could describe it in a simple way, is this, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time? No, it was the right place at the right time. It was just a couple of mistakes. And I really can't go into the specifics of the uh, case because of the confidentiality uh, agreement that I that Oh, I sure, sure. I can't really get into the specifics, but um, it was, uh, it was a, a few hours made by humans that allowed that... Um, that tragedy to exist. Right. And so you're, you're in a situation where, um, you're in a, a charged area that is, is sending thousands of volts. And is it that you step into a spot, you touch something, what, what creates the accident? What I think I can tell you is that the power we, as the linemen, we never work on live um, power. power supposed to be out. So the power was supposed to be out. Okay. And there was a couple of uh, things that happened that didn't allow that to be out. It was a couple of mistakes that was made. And then uh, when we went up to go uh, work on the wire, I was the first one that physically came in contact with it. Got it. Got it. So, so you were, you were fr- at the front of the line, and the person that was at the front of the line essentially, uh, you know, was going to get zapped in that situation. So, um, do you recall? You know, and we can and we can step away you know, from, from the particulars of that, just based on your confidentiality agreement. Um, do you, in, in your mind's eye, do you, do you remember, you know, that event? I mean, did you just go black or is there a different kind of experience? Uh, Oh, I, (laughs) there was an experience, right? (laughs) Yeah. We can laugh now, right? I do remember my version of it, which is not, the version that um, the people that were around me kind of saw. So okay. it's kind of difficult to explain. But when I got hit, I felt like uh, you ever see a cartoon character get electrocuted? You see the bones and they're kind of like frozen. Sure. So I kind of, uh, you, I felt like that. Like something grabbed a hold of me that was beyond my power and I just couldn't move a, a cell in my whole body. Mm-hmm. And then I felt, um, I felt it go from like uh, brownish in stages to all the way black. And then I just went out. Mm. So I actually remember getting hit. And then the next thing that I remember is being in an elevated position, looking down on the whole scene and watching what everybody was doing. So elevated position in that you feel like you were out of body at that point. Correct. Oh, that's interesting. They they said that he was dead. So there was people uh, working on me, trying to, uh, and wake me up or whatever. I was on fire. They they were putting the fire out. And then um, I went to the hospital. I woke up at the scene, uh, later went to the hospital and then told my wife that entire story that I just said. 
And then she didn't believe me. She was confused. And then asked one of the workers that I was working with to verify the story. I just said what happened. And oh, yeah. And then he, he told me the same. So one of the people that were there trying to help him panicked. And instead of doing CPR, he was hitting him and shaking him to try to get him to get up. Oh, boy. Wake up. And Rob was telling me, he's like, why didn't he give me CPR? I needed CPR at that moment. And I was like, how the hell do you did you not? How did you know that? And there's no, I don't, we still don't know how he, how he knew that. <laughs> so I watched the whole scene. He watched it, which is, I know it sounds crazy, but it really happened. No, it actually doesn't sound crazy. And I, I have definitely done my own research on, you know, firsthand accounts of what people experience, um, you know, and, and different people will interpret that experience different ways some people will say it's a mind trick, meaning your brain is firing in a different way and you might see different things or experience different things. And then there's the other school of thought that that is a part of your true self that has been sort of removed. And now you're, you're essentially viewing yourself in that particular situation. And, and I'm not necessarily not here, yeah, to, to, you know, kind of forecast you know, what that is. I think it's different for everyone. I'm, not, I'm telling yeah, no, you the facts. I'm not forecasting crazy. anything. <laughs> no, no, I get it. I get it. And I, I, I respect that. And your experience is your experience. My curiosity is in that authenticity that you're presenting right now. So for me, I, you know, very much appreciate that transparency of, hey, this is what I felt. This is what I saw. This is what happened to me. And there's a confirmation in that um, because it's real. It's what happened to you. So I get it, you know. And um, and we verified it through witnesses. Yeah, which was even stranger because everyone, everyone we said, I, everyone that I would bring it because then I started asking everybody that was up there. Yeah, because I thought no, you know. Um, and every single one of them, like pretty much, I just said what happened, mm -hmm. and they thought I was just saying, you know, what happened? Why did it happen? I'm like, no, no, no. What happened when he got hit? And they, I don't like describe the scene, tell me, and everyone said the same thing. <laughs> and and I, didn't said, believe, they, I didn't believe them at they first. They explained my story why I was yeah. flatlined. Yeah, no, he that's... Was, they said, he was definitely gone at yeah, that moment. To, to get all that confirmation is, yeah. I, I would think to a certain degree, based on what you were seeing through your own lens, would have to be a comfort to go, well, yeah, that's what I said happened. <laughs> <It> was <for laughs> him. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> that's what happened, <laughs> you know? And so it's interesting. I faded to black. I remember that. And then I remember the next thing I, I remember what was going on while I was out. But then I, I remember waking up and then the pain that, that set in and everything I had to deal with from that moment on was insane. Yeah. So I'm assuming that's waking up in the hospital kind of a situation no, on top of the equipment. Oh, so this is, this is in that moment you're yep. at, you're at the scene and you've come to, Right. And now you're in excruciating pain. Yelling the top of my lungs, screaming out loud pain. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's powerful stuff. And how much of the trip, you know, post-accident, we're, we're, you know, obviously we're, we're trying to get you to the hospital, get you in a, well, a OR. I came to, um, I remember pretty much everything. There was a big uh, weight at the scene. They were trying to cut a ring off my finger because my hand, they were afraid my hand was going to swell. And they finally got that off, so that took a while. And then we uh, made our way up to the ambulance. We were on our way to a hospital, and they decided we were on the way to the wrong hospital. And we had to turn around and go to the correct hospital because of the, the, the damages that, that I um, um, to my body that, I, that were inflicted on me. I had to go to... A certain I had to go to Wheel Cornell where they take care of the firefighters. Like that's where they are equipped to deal with like severe burns like that. Mm -hmm. So that took a, a minute. And then we finally got to the correct hospital. And I remember that. And then my, my wife finally got there. Your son, Andrew showed up. Andrew, first. my son was there. And then a couple of people from work started showing up. And then soon after that, I realized I couldn't move my hands. A doctor came in and asked me if he could move, if I could move my hands, and I and I couldn't. That's when I realized I was like, "Oh shoot! I think uh, my hands are in trouble." We're in trouble. And then um, after that, I think I told a story about what happened to my wife at the scene. 
and then um the surgery started so then yeah, it kind of started to get a little fuzzy after that yeah yeah and then following that there was 14 amputation surgeries yeah so so when they were you know evaluating him christine um <laughs> I mean, what were they telling you? I mean, what was what was uh, the what was the talk at that point? Well, he was awake. I had twenty minutes to live. He was awake. Well, that was later, but he was awake in the, in the in the emergency room. So they they were very careful what they said out loud to me. Um, so they wheeled him away, and the doctor one of the doctors came back, and he was like, "Listen, this is really serious. We're not really sure he's going to make it out of surgery. We just need you to know." So I um ran and threw up. <laughs> yeah. called my other two boys um told them to come and he did make it and he kept making it and then i think it was the third surgery right before they took him in they, they told me that there was about an 85 percent chance that he would lose his hands eventually with all the with all the surgeries that he was having but the when they when it actually did happen the doctor said yeah i don't think so i think he, you know we're gonna try to save him this is just gonna be another debriding where we're just removing or whatever um, my neighbors had come. My son was there, Anthony. We were in the waiting room and they called my name. So Anthony and I went into the, this little room and the two doctors were in there, the surgeons. So I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And I was afraid to show any emotion because I was with my son. So I kind of was just like, okay, you know, what's going on? And they told me that they needed my signature to be able to amputate both of his hands. And I said, no you wake him up and you ask him because I told him right before he went in for surgery that they weren't going to remove his hands. Yeah. So I kind of, and it was just an emotional thing. I kind of like was not yelling at them, but maybe a little like arguing, like, you know, you need to save them kind of, kind of thing, begging them to save his hands. And the lead surgeon finally looked at her watch and I swear to you looked at her watch and said, you have 20 minutes or he's going to die. So, so my son, the, just so I understand the timeline, mm -hmm. the, the, the period of time where you're talking about these like multiple surgeries, mm -hmm. what, what is that passage of time right there? It was all within about six weeks, five okay. weeks. It was all in the beginning. It was like every other day or okay. every day they were operating on him. Um, but that particular time she looked at her watch and she said, you have 20 minutes. He's going to die. Mm. So my son jumped up and he's like, I'll sign the papers and they wouldn't let him. So I signed the papers, of course. Um, and when he came out, he was, you know, so groggy or whatever. He didn't know that he lost his hands. And I had to tell him. And dur during those those weeks that you're speaking of, you know, multiple surgeries, mm -hmm. what? how are you feeling in that particular space, Rob? Wait, uh, I'm sorry, say that again. During the surgeries, how were during you the During those multiple surgeries, are you... Comp are, are you cognizant or are you okay so um, i i guess i'm trying to get like what your experience was while your family is, is you know sort of managing all these emotions talking to doctors what is what do things look like through your lens at that time well um i it, it was it felt like every day i don't know if it was but i was getting wheeled to surgery yeah you know, everything is you know is okay at that moment then post-surgery is when all like hell would break loose. I would feel literally like I was in a third world country hospital. It was like, I was just in a basement somewhere and I was fighting for my life. And then the person next to me was unrecognizable. And cause I was with a lot of people. And then all of a sudden I wake up next to a stranger. Yeah. And they're, they're a professional in the building, but like, I would think they were really trying to hurt me. Yeah. So I would, I would wake up every time fighting, fighting for my life. Fighting. He was on a lot of medication. Let's just put it that way. So I just constantly, I constantly thought people constantly were hurting me. Fighting. I thought people were trying to like do things to me on purpose, and I just, I, I it took a while to come out of like anesthesia, right? Yeah, he wasn't. We had a couple problems with the drugs that they were using to help prevent this, so we had to come up, overcome that, and it was a big deal. And yeah, and my, I, my had... I was dealing with like fighting for my life, basically. <laughs> Like, for real. You thought somebody was I trying to kill somebody, him. Yeah, like, somebody was trying to kill me every time I went to surgery. No, I get it. I, I've, I've, I'm someone who's had multiple surgeries myself, and there is a, uh, there is a place that you go in your mind where, um, 
it's not easy to sort of really interpret what's happening um, because there's a there certainly there's a cocktail of drugs going on, but also you're either managing pain, um, going in and out of surgery can be very disorienting. And um, there are times myself, I recall, you know, like you're exactly like you're describing, sort of looking over and going, where am I right now? Mm -hmm. Like what on earth is happening? Why am I in this room? Who are these people? You know, and I, I think it's actually pretty normal to get in that place of just, it, I'm fighting for my life here. I mean, it. this is up to me. That's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah right now, this is up to me. Like, I, I got I to gotta fight through this somehow. So, Christine, you, you make the, the decision, the very hard decision of, um, you know, signing off, uh, you know, on the tools that your husband has used his whole life. Um, being, being someone that uh, has built a career on working with his hands and um, it's hard for me to articulate just the weight of that. And still, still to this day, I ask him if he blames me because I know him and he, he was in the military. He was a volunteer fireman. He was fireman of the year. Like he was the coach. He was the, he did all of these things with the boys and, you know, every day after school, my youngest, they hit a bucket of balls in the backyard and he'd pitch to, you know, it was just, he was always doing stuff with his hands. He took care of everything in the house. Yeah. I was like a princess, you know what I mean? I had three sons and a husband, so I never even took the garbage out, you know? So, yeah. and, and I knew that about him. So I honestly, in the back of my head that, that night, I said, would he rather be dead? Yeah. You know, I didn't want him to be dead. I knew that I would take care of him forever, but I didn't know what he would want. So it, it still weighs on me sometimes. When, he get, when I see him struggle and, and he gets so frustrated when he can't do something or whatever. And, and honestly, I can't do what, what he used to do. Yeah. So he's trying to explain it to me, you know, and I'm with the, you know, I'm with a screwdriver going lefty tight, lefty loosey, righty tighty. Cause I just never did anything like that before. So don't feel bad, Christine. That sounds like me. <laughs> but it's still, you know, every now and then still, I see him struggle so much sometimes. And I'm like, mm, you know, I made that decision and, and I, and I would do it again. I would do it a thousand times over. Well, choose, um, choosing to save your husband's life. But I know that's not what he, before he went in, I mean, of course he was on a lot of drugs. He didn't want to, like, he, he just begged me, don't let them take my hands. So, yeah. and now an hour later, you're telling me you have to take them. And I told him, don't worry, they're not going to. Yeah. So it was like, I lied to him right before he went in. And then I wake up, he wakes up and I have to tell him. Yeah. You know, no, and, I, and I didn't let the doctors tell him, I, I told him. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, that's such a testament to the bond that you both share, you know, you, you, you letting your life partner know, you know, Hey, things, things didn't go our way, you know, right. things, things didn't work out the way we had hoped. And, um, I think it shows the strength that you both have, you know, in your relationship. And again, it's, it's such a huge beacon for so many couples out there that are faced with tragedy, that face these tough decisions. And, you know, we were talking to a guest previously and they were referring to losing a limb as like losing a child. It's such a, it's such a critical, integral part of who you are. Um, and for someone like Rob, who, you know, you've spent your life depending, you know, on your body, depending on your hands and your ability to do things um, in a hands-on way. Uh, man, what, 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 a, what an experience. And um, I don't know if I would, uh, I don't know if I would um, describe it like that. I'd rather lose all my limbs than a child. <laughs> well, that's because you have three yeah, children I know. and, you know. I, 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 I think I you're, yeah, I, I think, I think you're on the right. I, I think you're on the right track there. When I think about, you know, uh, losing my daughter or especially now, you know, my granddaughter, you know, I, you could take, you could take everything. 
You know, take it, take it all, <laughs> take it all. You know, no, but I that, understand where that guy's coming from. Yeah, yeah, but that's you know that's speaking as an amputee, and um, no, and, and this particular guy has a uh, he's a above the knee uh, amputee and has a wonderful relationship with his son, um, but you know, um, I I I just so appreciate your transparency in this. I I I really appreciate you walking me through and and you know, sort of feeding my curiosity because these are sensitive subjects and we, we don't want to um, sort of uh, bring to the surface a lot of pain and, and, and a lot of, um, you know, uh, stress and anxiety, but you both uh, seem to have an incredible, um, you know, sort of positive energy about it in that you're, you, you have faced it and it's just part of your life now. Um, and, uh, I, 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 in our next half hour, I want to, um, I want to discuss the comeback. I want to discuss the good stuff. I want to discuss where you're going now and, and the amazing things that you're engaging, you know, as an amputee. So, um, we're going to take a quick pause and we are going to jump into a segment that we do that is called Amps You Should Know. Hey everyone, today on Amps You Should Know, I want to introduce you to Ray Maldonado. Ray is a 50-year-old above-the-knee amputee. Uh, he's actually been an amputee for two years. He became an amputee through a work-related accident, and Ray is inspired by the support of all of his family and friends. Um, Ray is also an avid collector of hats, uh, which is kind of unique, uh, but Ray is unique. He's a great guy. I've had some great conversations with Ray online. Um, his biggest challenge when we were talking was that he says that he's had a tough time sort of accepting that he almost died you know, during this work accident. And, you know, a lot of people don't consider the emotional piece of what amputees go through. And Ray is one of those people that is very strong and acknowledges that this is something that he is still learning to live with. And he is a relatively new amputee. Ray is also a patient advocate. He's an incredibly generous person. He's an admin on a Facebook page that I personally follow. And he is one of those people that is willing to speak to other amputees in a one-on-one -on -one situation to offer his support and his guidance. Ray's got a smile that'll light up the room, and he is definitely an amputee that you should know. Hey everyone, we're back with Rob and Christine Zimmerman. Uh, in this half hour, I want to get into your recovery, Rob, and um, some of the challenges that you faced in adapting to your life. And obviously, uh, with the loss of your hands, this is a bit uh, what I would refer to as a big bridge to cross. And um, I think I think where I want to start is. Did you know anything about prosthetics? Did you know anything about what were the possibilities or potentialities in that? What was your recovery going to be like? Or conversely, like most amputees, just like myself, I didn't know anything. I mean, I was felt like I was kind of looking into the abyss of just not knowing what I was in for. So what was that experience like for you initially? I think, um, like, you you nailed it right on the head. At some point during the, my recovery in the hospital, later in the hospital uh, stay, uh, the, the subject was brought up about prosthetics. Obviously, your hands are gone. And then the, the thought was to kind of, like, calm me down a little bit is, don't worry, you know, there's prosthetics. And that was basically it. Like, I didn't know anything. I knew the word, right? I knew people wore them like amputees wore, you know, I knew that, that's all I knew. I mean, there's no reason for me to know anything about it. Cause I don't know anybody that has, um, an amputated limb. 
So I didn't know anything. I was kind of like you. It was just like thrown into the abyss, like you said. But on the other <laughs> hand, we have three boys that are connected to everything. So as I was sitting in the hospital, I moved to Manhattan to take care of him for the for the months that he was in the hospital. Hmm. Um, and his mom moved into our house to take care of our kids. But they would every five minutes sending me videos of and pictures of different prosthetics. Like Joseph was supposed to be in high school and he's <laughs> looking up and his teachers are looking up things, you know, that, that he could use and alternative devices and things like that. So I think I had a little better understanding only from, because of the kids. Um, Cause I really didn't have time to research myself so much with him. Um, so I slowly started introducing it to him just to give him hope. You know what I mean? Like there had to be hope. So every day I would show him a different video or talk about a different device that maybe we could get or look into, or we talked about transplant, you know what I mean? Anything that I could say positive to keep him up is what we did when he was in the hospital. And Rob, do you, do you feel like that talk? Cause you know, now you're, you're sort of looking at, you know, where your hands used to be. Did you feel like any of that talk was at least keeping your head above water in that situation? I don't know. It's hard for me to answer that really because I like, I remember it being like a, that was like a, that was like one of, that was the lowest point. So I wasn't really like looking into like all these opportunities I can have with prosthetics. It was just, I was still like dealing with grieving. what I lost. Right. Yeah. You were, so, you were grieving. Right. I wasn't dealing with uh, what can we do with this device or that device. No, but or, I think if we didn't have something for him to at least have in the back of his mind during the darkest time, I'm not sure how easy it would have been to transition home. Yeah, like he true. needed something to look forward to. I know him sometimes I think better than he knows him. Um, he needed something. Yeah, that's probably true. Like yeah, in the back of my mind, it was probably like, well, at least we're going to have to, we're going, we're going to this we're area gonna have, of prosthetics it's be and, different, but... and we'll, and we'll hopefully try and get better. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, Christine. Um, any positive energy uh, is fruitful, I think, in these situations. Um, I myself, you know, went through a grieving process. And then once I got on board and, you know, sort of surrendered to the idea that, okay, well, I'm going to wear a prosthetic leg and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then almost right away, I had a number of setbacks where I, I realized you know, you know, I, I, I can't do this. And, you know, I was having skin breakdown and having all sorts of problems and, you know, trying to find that momentum. Cause that's really what this is about, you know, finding the right energy, the right momentum to keep moving forward. Cause we all get stuck along the way, but getting those little pieces, you know, of positive energy, whether that comes from a friend, whether that comes from some random video, some article, you know, whatever that is. And so much of my amputee journey wasn't just fueled by people directly related to me, you know, my, my, my family or, you know, my kids or whatever. It, it was from, you know, people like yourselves. I mean, people online, stories I had read videos, uh, video blogs that I had followed, people that were slowly emerging almost like as my heroes, the people that were moving on and living their best life. And somehow I wanted to emulate what they were doing. So doing that, I think, again, going back to that testament of who the support system that you had, Rob, and finding that that just that little piece of faith to say, okay, we're just going to keep going here. We're going to see what happens. We're going to see how it goes. And that may not even necessarily mean like I'm completely on board with this. But at the same time, you're like, all right, I'll play along. Let, let's, see, let's see what happens. And sometimes that's enough just to kind of keep you going, you know, and... I mean, obviously your bond is very strong just as a couple that you were able to navigate that particular phase because I, I don't know if I'm, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, 
After the amputation itself, Rob, did you have more surgeries after that? Um, I did. Um, I had two toes removed from my right foot. Later. Oh, okay. I had a lot of skin grafts. I had um, uh, osteointegration. Oh yeah, uh, had the osteointegration done on this arm. Right. So I had a, a titanium rod um, a bored into my um, bone all the way up to my shoulder. So that arm is osteo, and what what is the other one? It's just a, a socket. That's just a socket. So that's like traditional, almost like what I'm yeah. wearing right now in my leg. And your left arm, correct, mm -hmm. is is integrated. That's correct. correct. So, so see, so this is up. yeah, this is remarkable to me because this is a part of the story that I did not know. Um, so osteointegration is a very progressive, new, really, really cool. Um, technology that's happening amongst uh, leg amputees as well, and because it's 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 actually a part of you, can can you explain that to the audience? Can you can you sort of walk us through what that's all about? Absolutely. So uh, June fifteenth, two years ago, uh, we went in for the surgery, and before we uh, went in for the surgery, we we spoke about it, and we were dealing with a lot of stuff on my left side. So when I got hurt, I was an avid swimmer. Mm -hmm. So what I tried to do right away after I got my, pros my my prosthetics is go back to the pool and start swimming again. So they outfitted me with a uh, uh, device on my left side that ended up really hurting my arm a lot. It was mm -hmm. it was painful to swim. I was only allowed to swim about five laps. The bone in my left arm was pointy, so it was jamming into the the end of my arm and it was causing like a um, a lot of scar tissue at the end of my arm. So putting my arm into a socket on the left side uh, just wasn't working, and it was like really destroying the, my left arm, whatever was left of my left arm. Yeah. So we decided at that point, if I wanted to continue to swim, which that was my main goal at that point, that maybe osteointegration is the way to go, and then we can eliminate the socket. So I decided it without even a thought, like, that's what we have to do, because there's nothing uh, left in my left arm anyway. So there was no real downside to trying this operation. So how long is your residual limb on your left arm? Um, it's right about right there. Okay. You can see that right pretty, pretty much where the prosthetic starts is where my arm ends. Okay. And the, uh, the titanium rod sticks out further to about this point. Should we show it? Yeah, I'll show it to you. I'll, I'll take his arm off in a second and I'll show you. And what about, what about the right arm? Uh, as far as swimming. No, as far as far oh, as amputated, yeah, so I'm amputated right around here. I don't know if you above right the around. wrist. Okay, okay, below the elbow. Okay, so 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 you very much lost uh, much more of your left arm. Uh, right, I'm above elbow on the left and below on the right. Got it, got it. Okay, so, so the osteo regression um, was the only option I thought for me to keep swimming. So I was doing five laps in the pool, excruciating pain. A lot of difficult uh, things going on on my left side. So we had the operation, and it took about the summer to recover. And a lot of little exercises that you have to do to kind of uh, you know, push down on it, and you stress it a little bit, and the doctor goes over all that stuff. And he wanted you. to do it so much faster, and the doctor was <laughs> like, no, Rob, don't rest it up. Slow down, so Rob. <laughs> later on that summer, um, we, um, we finally uh, got the devices built. And, and we had the coupling put on to the titanium rod, and then uh, we started swimming again. So there was no socket, and there was no pain um, from the bone inside my arm. So I went from five laps to 30 laps pretty quick. <sighs> Incredible. The hardest part of the osteointegration was getting the coupling for it. They, they're, it's so new here, and I know he had it done at Hospital for Special Surgery with Dr. Rosbrook, who's phenomenal. Um, highly recommend him if anybody's looking into it. Um, but they couldn't get the couplings because they came from Australia. Right. And we did this right smack in the middle of COVID. Um, so, and there aren't many for arms. So he went to his his prosthetist at home, um, International Prosthetics in Patog, and he created and, and retrofitted and 3D printed a coupling so that Rob could swim. Right. And it's a coupling that we still use. I'll show you what it looks like. Yeah. I'm so this you. pin right here holds everything together. That goes through the coupling that's on my arm. Got it. And that's really good. 
Got it. Okay. No, that makes sense now. That's the coupling, but then that's the rod that goes all the way up into his shoulder. Right. That's the bolt that holds it in place. Exactly. What kind of what kind of care do you take in that connection point between um, that rod and your skin? Um, uh, we keep it clean. Try to keep uh, foreign objects out of it, <laughs> and um, we clear there. We have a daking solution, which is kind of. Um, like a, a chlorine and bleach kind yeah. of solution that's mm -hmm. easy on the, on the skin it. and we use that a lot and we just kind of clean it two three times a day and and that's about it but he swims too so he's in the chlorine and i think that's a big deal like when he he hurt his back a couple of weeks ago believe it or not when he was sleeping so he was out of the pool and i noticed that when he was out of the pool it, it you know it discharges so it's an open wound kind of yeah without lack of, you know for lack of a better term it would it would smell and it's, it would a, it's an opening you know I, yeah. I i've read up on osseo so i i understand that you know there's there's sort of that connection between organic material and machine you right. know so so there is some management that goes on in that particular mm -hmm. let's call that the outsides for the surgery is there's a, a constant discharge there right at the at the site so it's a clear discharge and and then, like every uh, three, four hours, just kind of uh, wipe it off and, and just go. And yeah, just we use baby carry soap, on. like you know, um, baby soap on it, or um, what in the is shower, it? you just rinse it. You clean it. Warm water, soap and water is really the best way to take care of it. But when it gets gross, like after he's worn it all day, the Dakin solution, or even alcohol, yeah, cleans. It's a, it's an, it's one of the downsides to the operation, but it's manageable. And it's it, like I said, it took me from Night five laps. Day to 30 laps it's night and day Doesn't quality of life everything is it was so worth it what what has also changed aside from the swimming piece which i want to talk about a little bit more what what has also changed in terms of the gear let's call it the hardware that you're employing right now um has anything changed in terms of how many other tasks that you can do given the osseo uh procedure so the osseo integration allowed me to wear a body power arm as well as the myoelectric arm controlled by co-op so okay so i'm going to stop you for a second i i need you to break all of that down because that's like <laughs> greek to me well, why don't you talk and i'll get some of the stuff so okay. he can see it yeah because this this is the engineering piece which is you know super fascinating and Rob, you got to remember, you're talking to a leg amputee right now. So I'm kind of right. like, I'm kind of like, wow, wow, wow. That's really cool. It's like RoboCop kind of stuff. So I, yeah, I just, you know, I, I want to have a deeper understanding of what's going on there. That would be super helpful. Um, uh, what I noticed in my, through my research is that a lot of um, upper extremity amputees wear body power. And what body power is, is you wear uh, like a harness under my, uh, my arm here. And that is connected to the cables and then now and once you lock your elbow mm -hmm. you can operate your hook and through the cables holding it here that's what uh, body power does so you're using your body to power um the prosthetics okay you, you lock the elbow and then you'll be able to open and close your hand so that's body power um how that basically works the principle of it and most upper upper extremity uh, amputees that's what they wear but I didn't want to do that. I was more interested in the battery robot arm kind mm -hmm. of thing. And what they and what they call that is myoelectric. So what happens is they have batteries in here and there's two sensors that are inside here. You can you can give me another arm if I can show them. And I use the muscles that um, rest against the sensors to operate the device, whatever device I have. So your res your residual limb is sending signals to that. Correct. With the muscles. And then, like, this is just another one. I don't know if you can see it. Another one of his arms, and this has a hand on it. Oh, I see. And that's the inside. I don't know if you can see those um, sensors in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can see it. Absolutely. So I use, uh, I use uh, they rest, the right uh, they sit on the skin on my arm, and I use my muscle to, like, twitch and then send a signal through those sensors. And then it's a lot of uh, training, and and it's a, it takes a long time to get used to. 
And then you have to get used to the device that you're wearing. So, so a lot, every device has different software and how they operate is different. So you got to get used to that and try to make it look like a, a fluid device on your hand without all that stuff going on. That is so cool. And from, from you know, when we talk about the adaptive, you know, kind of piece of that, um, how what's the period of time where you start to feel, you know, that confidence level where you're like, Hey man, I can, you know, I'm, I'm really getting used to this. Like I can use this. It takes, it takes, uh, it takes a little bit. I would say months to years. Okay. So, 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 so it's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a patient process. What I think happens is, is, uh, once you get a device like this and you start messing with it and you operate it, it, it is like taking a baby home. Nobody gives you instructions. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and knock yourself out. But um, you, you, it's a process. You think you're good, and then like a couple months later, you start doing it better. Then, oh wait, I'm I'm get, actually getting better. So it's it's like you think you're okay, but there's a, it's a constant learning curve. There was no stopping him. Once he got them on, it was just nonstop. All I hear is the the gears in my head <laughs> constantly. He <laughs> in my sleep, I hear it. Um, he he was always doing things to to practice and he went to OT and he went to PT and you know what you don't realize when you're in upper ex- extremity what what a what a fall risk you are oh sure you know um cuz and and then without having a couple of toes and you know missing part of the top of his foot like all of that um he was such a fall risk that he had to practice like he he practiced every day all day you know that was that was what he did that was his job yeah and where do you where do you think um where do you think that commitment comes from, Rob? Uh, I think I think it just comes from who I am. Like He's so I was, <laughs> I was this person before I got yes. hurt, and I and, and um, I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I got hurt in my mid forties, so I was already kind of established as a person, who I was, my family, and everything else. So I, you know, I kind of didn't get lost there. I just tried to get back to the person that I already was. Yeah. No, I, I, I lost my leg, uh, in my forties as well. So, um, I, I think you're right. Your, your identity is sort of imprinted already. Right. And when it comes to, uh, taking on challenges, uh, our constitution, let's call it as human beings, it really doesn't change. Um, it's just another thing and it's like, okay, bring it on. Let's figure this out. Right. And, um, that's wonderful. What are you showing me there, Christine? Oh, I was putting it down. This is his right paddle for the right arm yep. that he swims with. This was all 3D printed by his prosthetist, Eric. Um, he made all this up. That's the right arm. And then that's a socket for my right arm. The yep. socket. And this goes right on to the coupling. Yeah. For the left arm. And you screw it in with the pin. No socket. No socket or anything. So it just clicks in. When he was, before he had the osteo integration, it was so painful. Like he couldn't even sit, he couldn't sleep, he couldn't do anything because it it constantly hurt all the time. So I went from a device that was similar to this on my left side to this, to this. Yep. Which is so much better. Right. Totally exterior from the arm, no socket. Nope. Nothing uh, touching my left arm at all. Yeah. Which is directly connected to the osteointegration. What a a difference. Yeah, but this all had to be like, you know, created by his prosthetist. And then this is the left arm. This is the left um, battery. Mayo. Okay. Yeah. And same thing. The prosthetist created this with the 3D printer, so that it it fits over. And then you have all the sensors in there um, that work off the, the little muscle. He only has about this much of a muscle on the left side left. They even cut out a lot of his pec muscle and all of that. Um, So he's, he, with a lot of work, (laughs) international prosthetics has created this for him. And it's amazing. No, it, the technology piece of your story um, is just, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's total for anyone that loves, you know, um, anything sci-fi is like, just (laughs) wow. I mean, look what is going on with this human being. And um, it's it's so wonderful that you are very much a sort of a promoter of that and recognizing and celebrating, you know, all these really, really neat 
technologies that are that are giving you know uh, Rob a second chance at so many things that he loves doing. You, Rob, you said that you were a swimmer before the accident, correct? Correct. And in term, again, when we talk about adaptive athletes and 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 people that you know work around the this uh, you know this new experience, um, can you describe or differentiate you know swimming um, with your limbs versus what swimming feels like now? And what that acclimation period was, obviously, once you had the osteointegration, it was a game changer. But e- even in the high functioning place that you're in right now as a swimmer, um, you know, how does that feel different? Oh, it's much different. Um, but you lost your hands. So you glide through the water as a swimmer, even an amateur swimmer. You, like, you, you glide through the water and you, you control your hands at every point. Like even uh, the slightest turn in the water will make you do something and you get used to swimming. So when you lose your hands, you replace them, you have to replace it with something. So I replaced it with these white paddles. So they fold forward, but they don't fall backwards. So you can push through the water. Uh-huh. So then when you have something as rigid as this compared to a hand going through the water, it's, it's a learning curve. Like you wouldn't believe you have to um, put the paddles in a, in a certain position so when you cut through the water, it, you won't uh, fall on your face, basically. You, you have to try to, they have to mimic the real hands somehow. And to get used to something so hard and rigid that doesn't bend like what you like your fingers to or your your thumb or whatever, takes a lot of time and practice. He retrained himself. So I actually, down. I'm sorry, I actually have spots in my chest muscle that on my left side that are... A little bit bigger than my right side now because of the loss of my elbow. Yeah. So I don't have an elbow; I have a straight arm. So it's kind of like an oar now, not like a a human arm. Mm-hmm. So I comp- it gets compensated right in the middle of my chest instead of like my shoulder and my arm. So now my left side of my chest is actually starting to get bigger because of my exercise. Yeah, the the human body is um, is incredible. A lot of leg amputees will talk about you know the reshaping uh, of the residual limb. And how fluid management uh, becomes yeah. a huge factor in performance when people become high functioning, and really, uh, it's a testament to like how organic we are as creatures, and how things will mold and shape. And when we stick something in a socket, how it re- how it reacts, and um, it's all of that is very fascinating to me. So. Um, you know, that's why I'm so curious to know. And you said um, right now your your typical workout is how many laps are you doing? 30. Wow. There and back is one lap and I do 30 every day. Wow. Five days a week. Wow, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. And um, uh, I know you've mentioned a couple times the clinic that you're currently working with. Who is that again? It's International Prosthetics. Okay. Um, the owner's name is Eric Schatz. Okay. And I'm, I can tell anybody that's listening, if you want a prosthetist that cares and that is brilliant and not money hungry, not money hungry and really legitimately wants to help you and does, doesn't just want to, can actually do it. International prosthetics, Eric Schatz is the way to go. Oh, yeah. What a great, what a great endorsement. You, you, sir, are truly a testament to that um, success and that patient focused uh, care. You know, I myself have experienced um, the same thing in that I I have been with uh, clinics and prosthetists that were very, let's call it process focused, and they weren't necessarily patient focused. Mm -hmm. And we all know it's definitely patient focused. We, we, same scenario. The the first place we went to was all about money and not about the person. Yep. Um, And then I found Eric. You know, after searching and searching, I kind of walked in defeated because I wasn't able and I met him and I was like, Rob, this is where you're going to go. Yeah. And and the guy is just He just opened phenomenal. a brand new building. Yeah, he just Beautiful. opened a brand new building. It's the best prosthetic lab I've ever seen in my life, I think. He is just awesome. Well, and when you consider where you're at now, Rob, in, in comparison, you know, to where you've he been. Would be, he wouldn't be here doing what he does if it wasn't for Eric. He wouldn't. <laughs> No, and and I, you know, I am in the same 
sort of headspace where when I come in contact with someone who gives me the ability to take that leap forward, oh, I am so appreciative. It's just like that, that's yeah. what his that's what he's all about. Like that's he just wants want. to make sure that he's helping you get better in your life, in my in, in your own life. Yeah. So and, and that, he means it. He's he means sincere. It. He's like, you know, a lot of people will say it. When you go and interview prosthetists or whatever, they'll say everything that you want to hear. But the follow through with with Eric and he really means what he says. And he like I've talked to his wife, like it's a family, like they're all there all the time. And she'll say, yeah, he'll wake up at two o'clock in the morning. And go, oh, I can do this for Rob. You know, that's the kind of guy he is. No, that's I asked him to um, install this light on my um, on my arm. I don't know if you can see it right here. Oh, yeah. So he had a 3D print, a little contraption for me just so I can hold a light. There's no reason other than no the fact that I just wanted a light on my arm. <laughs> I got to be honest, man. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. You're like, hey, can we uh, add an accessory here? You know? <laughs> Let's make it cool. <laughs> totally. No, I... A magnet on here. So now when I get stuck, sometimes to unscrew it, it's really hard. So we have a, a three-in-one, five-in-one multi -tool. tool, multi-tool, whatever, and it sticks here, so I never lose it. You're like a so human Swiss Army knife, Rob. Right. Yeah. But if he gets stuck in the arm, I can. I have a tool to get it off. But of I him. go to Eric Schatz at International Prosthetics, and I and I say, I need, you know, I need to make this cooler, whatever. And he's always on board. He's like, whatever, like makes me feel better. Whatever makes me feel happier. Like he he'll go out of his way and he'll try to help you. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, you two are delightful. I um, I so appreciate you being here and sharing and, you know, showing so many of us that the power of two is certainly much stronger than one. And, um, you know, I, I can't thank you enough. And, uh, you know, just with your honesty and all the detail and sharing so much about, you know, um, not just your relationship, but your prosthetics. And, um, you know, it's just, um, it's, it's an amazing story. And I'm so glad that we're going to be able to share it with the audience. Uh, so thank you, Rob and Christine Zimmerman. I wish you well, and please stay in touch. Um, and hopefully uh, we can track your progress and um, maybe revisit in the future, I'm hoping. Um, but anyway, that's going to wrap it up for us, guys. This is the Amped Up to 11 podcast. My name is Rick Bonkowski, and I want to wish everyone health and happiness, and we will see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>